Welcome to episode number 266 of Destination Linux. Whether you're brand new to open source or a guru of sudo, this is the show for you. My name is Ryan. I'm Michael. And I'm Jill. Also with us just off camera, but piped in directly from our 60,000 square foot virtual stadium, also known as the Jitchy Room, is our glorious community of fact-checking, ego-busting patrons. And on this week's episode of Destination Linux, we are headed back to Jill's museum to go on a treasure hunt. This one even contains apparently a multiverse of treasures and we don't get a preview. Michael and I don't know what's beneath that towel there. So we're going to be as surprised and go along this journey with you. Then we're going to chat about Inkscape's latest version. Plus we have our tips, tricks and software picks. All of this coming up right now on Destination Linux. So we have a quick announcement to give you related to some changes that we're going to be doing with the network and the channels and stuff like that. So we're going to be making different channels for each show. So you can subscribe to specifically which show you want to subscribe to and get notifications for that when they release new episodes and also when we do uh, new videos and stuff like that related to the episodes. And we're also going to be doing some changes to the main network channel. So we're not getting rid of the network channel. We're just making it so that the uh, each individual show has its own channel so people can subscribe to it. It makes it easier to get more specific uh, granular approach to doing this but we're going to be making it so the main channel is a highlights slash clip slash streaming channel so the streaming for all the different shows are going to be on this same channel that it is right now so this next week we're still going to be streaming here and twill is this week in linux is going to be streaming here on this channel as well going forward but we're going to have separate videos for the releases those those are going to be in the different channels but the everything else is going to be on this main channel for the highlights and clips and stuff like that making it easier for people to get like snippets of the different stuff as well as get the longer versions on the specific channels that's going to be starting next week so uh this this episode will be posted on both channels just so you know. But going forward, we're going to be focusing on the the exclusive Destination Even Linux channel. I get channel. confused trying to find yeah. the channel <laughs> I want to look for in the current conglomerate. So I'm very happy about this change. I know other people will too. And um, they're going to subscribe to all of the channels. Absolutely. And we're going to have links. So you can just go to right now, go to destinationlinux.network slash subscribe, and then it'll give you the links to everything. In our community feedback this week, we received an email from Sai. Sai is from India and mentions that he appreciates all the work on the show, but that he has a particular issue with the concept that Linux is ready for the mainstream on the desktop. And the reason that he gives is that he's partially blind, which means he can't read text on the screen, can't clearly comprehend the things without utilizing some additional tools like the magnification, dark mode, read aloud, on their computer, and then goes on to give a very lengthy kind of rundown in detail of all of the issues with the Linux desktop when it comes to accessibility across the board, and then does some comparisons with his work in Mac OS and Windows, and basically stating that loves Linux for its philosophy, its openness, the freedom it offers. However, when it comes to accessibility, it feels like Linux is breaking out of its own philosophy and gives a quote here that computing should be available for everyone and free despite the differences, their backgrounds, their educational qualifications, shouldn't it include people despite their abilities and disabilities. Uh, I truly believe Linux could dominate the whole desktop world soon, but right now we got to make it easier for all of those who need it. This was really mm-hmm. interesting because we didn't get a chance to cover this in depth in our conversation before. So first of all, thank you so much for sending this in. I think it is important. One of the things that we did touch on in that episode was education. And in an education environment, it would be very important for them to have a strong accessibility infrastructure that they would use in any of the products that they would put into schools. And the same thing goes for the corporate world. So, Jill, I think this would be interesting one for you to kind of give some of your experiences on, because you've talked about this in the past and some of the yeah. accessibility tools that you've used. So I want to turn it over to you because I think Sai makes a brilliant point here, honestly. Yeah. Well, Sai, I actually completely understand if you don't 
don't know and many of you don't know, I am also half blind myself. So, you know, I have da damaged optic nerves and only see detail of one eye. But fortunately, I do have good close up in my right eye, but no distance. So uh, I have dealt with this issue, too. Accessibility on Linux is very behind, honestly. And it doesn't have the push of the proprietary options like that are available on Windows and Mac OS and aren't as well integrated. But in the past, there was actually a lot of work on accessibility in Linux and open source with the fine work of the blind Linux user, Jonathan Nadeau. He even had been working on a Linux distro just for the visually impaired. And uh, he worked very hard on that. Was that Sonar? Yes, it was Sonar. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I remember testing it back in the day. And it was it was wonderful. I just wish there was more work done on that. And he was able to continue with the project. But he is still around in the community. But I, I, that was, he was doing that work for the Free Software Foundation as a, as a grant. So anyways, you know, I think the problem is actually kind of a chicken and the egg thing. There aren't that many blind... Linux users to help develop accessibility software on Linux. And if Linux became more dominant on the desktop, there would be more people using it who have disabilities and thus more work being done to improve accessibility. And I think that's one of the major problems right now is just we, we don't have a lot of folks, folks to contribute that have issues. And this is not belittling the fine folks at Orca who do amazing job with Orca inter in integration into GNOME, but they need more help from the community. And that's just where we're at right now. Orca does a lot of impressive work and they've been doing it yeah. for many, many years. So, I mean, thank you for the, all the people who work on Orca. And it's it's interesting because I, I when I was, mm -hmm. when we were talking about this, I was thinking about maybe it's a, you know, they're not thinking about it. So they're not, they're the people who are, a lot of developers are not uh, trying this out for the accessibility. So they just don't even know that it's not accessible for people. And yeah, uh, what's so the, true. I think there'd be like a, maybe I'm not sure if we could, this would be a good place to talk about this. Maybe we could talk about it in a future episode, but I was thinking like maybe um, we could discuss, uh, have people on who have those issues that get, you know, or at least we could send out an email or a message to see on the forum, see if anybody has any suggestions of how people could get involved in working on accessibility and that yeah. kind of thing. Because, Absolutely. you know, it's just like, the way I look at it is the developers just don't know that that's a necessity because they're just not thinking about it as they might not have that issue. The, you were bringing up Sonar. I think that was a great example of what can mm -hmm. be done when there's put effort behind that sort of thing. The first thing that every distro should be thinking about is do you have any of the accessibility options that are available in your documentation? Oh, yeah. That's a problem right now. Mm -hmm. Like we don't even have most of the distros out there don't even have an accessibility section in their documentation. So that would be step one to fix. Yeah. Step two is I do feel like this is a foundational issue. Like one of the foundations really need to work together to put a sprint together to kind of address this from a development community standpoint, because there are so many different types of issues that you would need to overcome outside exactly. of just eyesight alone. So right. there mm -hmm. are so many accessibility uh, differences that we need to make sure you would bring into this to kind of create an overall accessibility package that any distro could adopt into and make sure that they're including in the documentation that they should have there. So if you're somebody looking to get involved in a distro, it's just a little bit of time to help those distros. A lot of them, you can go support their documentation. I did it for Pop! OS once. Uh, you can do it for other distros as well and write some accessibility in there, especially if you're somebody who has one of these accessibility issues and you you have utilized certain tools to help you overcome some of those, then you would be perfect to help with some of the documentation and things like that. But yeah. I like your idea too, Michael, kind of putting it out there to the community and kind of mentioning that this is a problem. But this is a big one. This will hold the Linux desktop back uh, from, from getting into the organizations and places that we all want to see it in if we don't address this. And it's really, right. it's yeah. really something we could go a lot we could go very deep in in a future episode as well because I think it deserves it. Oh, definitely. And and Ryan, that you, you you touched upon this, but everyone with a disability has different different needs and different requirements. So that makes the doing the software very challenging, creating software. And another thing I had been thinking about is that yeah, like just like you said, we need to make a universal standard in Linux across all the distros because we do have that on the web for accessibility. 
but a lot of people don't use that on their web pages, and they should be because there are standards created yeah. uh, just for that. Yeah, I actually found a a. A video talking about accessibility for website stuff because uh, for those who don't know I make websites the hidden link that uh, that most some, most websites don't have mm-hmm. but but all websites sh- should have it and I had no idea what this is even talking about like and so I watched the video and it was just a a link that you put at the very top of your code that is completely empty and it does nothing except skip the navigation menu because the yeah. na- most navigation menus are based on visuals and being able to hover over something and to have more drop downs and stuff like that. Whereas if you click this link, uh, it allows the, the screen readers to jump from here to the rest of the content and then actually read the content. I was mm-hmm. like, that's just, that's such a genius way of approaching it that it's, like that I never yeah. even thought of. It's just like those kinds of things could be done in Linux and like the installers and different software and stuff like that. And I would love for it if there was a community effort to address these things. Absolutely. We're we're working on Mm -hmm. additional options as well, like improving closed captioning Mm -hmm. for our shows and things. Mm -hmm. So it's something that everyone should really be thinking about if you're inside a project. But again, thank you so much, Cy, for sending in that email. I think you made some very valid points there of things that we need to overcome. And we love hearing from our worldwide community because we get deep thoughts like that, things that we Mm -hmm. may have missed on a prior topic that you help us cover and we get to readdress so we want what we want you to do is get your official DLN mug, fill it with some coffee or some bubbly, sit down on the nearest stool and send us an email to comments at destinationlinux.org. Or if you want to join in the community discussion, then join the DLN community forum by going to dlnforum.com where we'll post something about this accessibility question and see if we can get some people uh, you know, ramped up over helping fix this. This episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Cloud computing can be, let's say, complex, but standing up reliable, affordable cloud infrastructure really doesn't have to be. At DigitalOcean, you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, storage, database, and networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so you and your teams can get back to doing what matters most, building your world-changing apps that grow your business. Predictable pricing, robust product docs, uh, services that developers love, that's that's DigitalOcean. Get support at every stage of growth, whether you have a team of one or a team of thousand with simple, powerful cloud computing, you can grow at DigitalOcean. As a listener of the Destination Linux podcast and a member of the DLN community, you can get started for free. In fact, it's even better than free because DigitalOcean is giving a $100 free credit when you go to do.co slash tux2022. That's Wait, do. That's changed, Michael. That is changed. do.co slash tux T-U-X 2022. We changed the URL to Tux for many reasons, but for reference, Tux <laughs> is the name of the Linux Penguins mascot. So again, go to, to get started, go to get your free $100 credit by going to do.co slash Tux 2022. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of Destination Linux. I know what you've all been waiting for. You've been waiting for Jill's treasure hunt, and it's here this time. I challenged Jill <laughs> to find something that has to do with graphic design or animation work from Jill's amazing treasure trove of computers and technology that she has at her home. So Jill, that was the challenge I threw down. I threw down the gauntlet. Will <laughs> you be able to meet the challenge? What is there under that towel? This special computer, I'm going to show you, I started using in the 1990s for my animation business and doing computer animation freelance work. I had access to a Silicon Graphics machine running the Ilias 3D computer animation program, but didn't have access to it at home for rendering and content creation. Ilias animation program was thousands of dollars, and to get a copy of Unix was 25,000 to 30K, let alone the cost of the hardware. Yeah. <laughs> Pocket change for Michael, but for the rest yeah. of us, that's if a lot only. of money. If only. Yeah. <laughs> so I would use my home built PCs and workstations running DOS, Windows, and Linux to do my work. So this computer actually has many unique features that you will notice immediately. So here it comes. And by the way, <laughs> while we're going through this, I want you guys to know that you can ask questions in the chat. And Michael and I will try to read them and get your questions answered. If they're good questions. If they're not, then we'll skip them. 
<laughs> That's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> well, that is a beautiful machine. That's a full size ATX tower that we're looking at here in complete AT. black. But yeah, AT with uh, a bunch of neon drives going down the front of it. Yeah. Here. And it even has a little RGB bling bling there. <laughs> this nice. This computer is named Cosmic Infinity. I built it in 1995 and it still runs beautifully. It is a black full height tower beast and it is a true artist computer all the three and a half bay and five and a quarter bay panels and devices are painted in the array of the color wheel thank you to my wonderful steve husband for doing that <laughs> he painted them professionally for me nice. <laughs> so yes the case was actually modded before apple came out with their fruity colored computers Look and yeah it even has rgb on the front um because we started that trend back in the like late 80s <laughs> so i'd been i'd been case modding my cases for years <laughs> yeah wendy in the patron chat said rainbow vomit because yes absolutely wendy, wendy has an uh, affinity well, of hatred she, towards uh she's, RGB. Spe she's specifically talking about multicolored lights not multicolored yeah. drives <laughs> yeah <laughs> i think that might be okay yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the first drive is neon green. Is that a second drive beneath that, or is that just a a placeholder for the yellow? Uh, just a placeholder. Okay. So you you're seeing lots of unique things on here. Yes, there are two CD and DVD burners for copying discs and dual burning burning and playing DVDs. And there's one here on the top that's uh, green with a purple uh, DVD tray. It's so and on cool. the bottom, it's blue, uh, a blue CD burner. But there's also something really cool on this case that a lot of you may remember. A zip drive. <laughs> that is a purple <laughs> zip drive. <laughs> nice. We just got a question Actually, in the chat to see if it was a zip drive. So that's perfect. Yes. If a lot of you out there that don't know and that aren't old enough to even know, uh, the, the zips came out in 1994. And it was a removable floppy disk storage system that was in introduced by iOmega. And the zip, the zip drive is actually a super floppy, what we called super floppy disk drive that has all of the three and a half inch floppies drives convenience, but with much greater capacity options and with performance that is much improved over a standard floppy drive. Oh, thank God. Because okay. back in the yep. day, I went from literally carrying hundreds of floppy disks to places to work on projects. And now that was, I was able to put all that on one. Nice, convenient desk. <laughs> back in the day, Jill, we had those cases that were like filing cabinets. They weren't as big as a filing cabinet, but they were like mini filing cabinets yes. that you would keep your discs in. I and had you had those. the labels uh -huh. at the top where you'd put, these are the discs for whatever <laughs> program. And you would carry those type around. And some even had a little key and lockbox, you know? So yeah. You'd carry, mm -hmm. you'd carry your discs around and they'd be like, nerd. You'd be like, shut up. But you'd and, still be able to carry it around. And I was a student when, uh, you know, we were we only had floppies and hard drives. So it was, I literally was carrying several hundred floppies with me to classes every day to complete my animation work because animation requires hundreds of <laughs> floppies. You know, on average, only get two or three frames on one floppy disk. Oh, wow. And it was a pain because you always had to have, you always had to have backups. And I always had three copies of everything because there were times when the first floppy would die. Then the second floppy would die of of the copy, and then and then the third one you'd have to rely on because <laughs> it was the only one that survived. Because doing animation with floppy disk technology was very hard on the disks, and they would die very quickly. <laughs> yeah, <I'd> imagine <laughs> accessing all that. So the zip disk actually came in a hundred megs of storage. Here's here's an older one, a hundred megs. These ones are actually. Brand new, never used because I have packs we could of them. Fit several Michael AIs on that disc. <laughs> several, yeah. yeah, yeah. And they came later. Yay! We had the two fifty uh, <laughs> megabytes of storage uh, discs, and then uh, seven fifty megabytes of storage came later. But the seventy seven fifties were kind of superseded by uh, CDs and DVD Rs. <laughs> so, right. <laughs> I was fortunate because I also had access to CD. Uh, uh, burners years before they were available commercially. And that saved my life a lot for my projects I worked on because even the zips were just too small. <laughs> I mean, there was a time when work. we were building computers that you wouldn't build one without 
a CDR in there. Like you yeah. wouldn't dare. And now we've gone back to a lot of the cases, including my Leon Lee Mini ITX has no drive yeah. phase at all. You don't need yeah, them anywhere. Nope, Everything's gone to USB and things <laughs> like that. I, I do have a question. I don't know if you plan on getting yeah. to it, Jill, but why the colors that you chose here? The neon green, yes. the yellow, the purples, the reds, the blues? Well, it started out, um, this CDR down here is blue. Well, it came that way because I wanted something unique. Yeah. I got a blue one. And then I'm just like, you know, I I want wanted to have happy colors. I'm an animator and cool. artist and wanted to have happy colors and something very unique. And, you know, there were no colored computers at the time. They were all beige boxes. Yeah. So yep. I was just happy to find a black case. <laughs> so, <laughs> And uh, I had the idea of doing the case in the spectrum of a color wheel. That Very was nice. it. And then my it's Bob Ross, yeah. happy little tree. I like yeah. <laughs> I like it. So and of course, it has a penguin sticker on it for showing my Linux love. Nice. And uh, there's something else unique on the front that tells what kind of processor is inside of it. What so, kind of processor did you put in this three-foot case that you have here? I had the beige version of the three-foot case, by the way, for the longest time. And one thing I'll say <laughs> about these cases is even though they're much bigger and there's much more space to work in, the edges in the cases weren't rolled like they are today. You are so spoiled today. They were razor yeah. sharp. And razor you sharp. Would, I would have cuts all over my arm from working on these machines day in and day out. I look like I worked yeah. in a factory or something. Oh yeah. yeah. I, I had, I have some damage from this computer too. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't really a hardware person, but I do remember those days where the things would just cut you for opening it. Like how yeah, dare I you literally open me? think they manufactured yeah. the case out of razor blades. Like, yes, like, <laughs> literally weld a bunch yeah. of razor blades together. And they were all like that. And they, and it wasn't even that they weren't even, and they're thick material. You know, thick metal as opposed to aluminum. <laughs> yes. So yeah. really thick and really sharp. You always yes. have to be careful. So this computer is powered by Intel's Pentium Pro, which was actually launched at the end of 1995 with a CPU core consisting of 5.5 million transistors and was initially aimed at the server and high-end workstation market. And the Pentium Pro is the predecessor to the Xeon processor. And it, it actually introduced the P6 or I686 micro architecture. And it only came in one form factor, the large rectangular socket eight or super socket eight, which I'm going to show you now. So I, I have to give I have to give a lot of credit here, Jill, to our viewers, because one of the viewers asked, is that a motherboard under the case at the very early on? I'm like, yes. how did they see that? Yeah, yeah. I didn't, even, I didn't yeah. even see it until I said that. <laughs> yeah. So this one is very unique because I actually built would custom build my own heat sinks because the ones that the Intel one that came with the Pentium Pro wasn't very good. And there weren't, you know, it was still a new processor, so there weren't good aftermarket options. <laughs> you had to build your own. That's pretty cool. So I used a, a bandsaw and um, um, cut some heat, heat sinks. And I had um, two Pentium Pros I was working on at the time, including the one in the case that looks very similar to this one. And uh, I later had a couple more Pentium Pros. So later on um, in the 2000s, I had about four P Pentium Pros for rendering. You can see that it. I had to use zip ties to put a fan <laughs> on the heatsink. But I was pretty proud of myself. I did that on my dad's bandsaw because uh, he he was a contractor, and I had learned uh, learned how to build furniture and did a lot of work in his shop. So I Look made at my you own hardware heat hacking so early on, Jill. Yeah. <laughs> now, where's the CMOS battery on there? I feel like it's uh So so this one has one of those horrible onboard. This motherboard has an onboard CMOS, a Dallas CMOS that oh, are hard to replace. So the motherboard that's in Cosmic Infinity has a a, a classic uh, round battery that's easily easily replaced. So that's why the the motherboard in this one Cosmic Infinity is a little better. I love the name Cosmic Infinity that you yes, gave your computer. Really I feel like the mini beast and things that I name my computers now are quite lame in comparison to Cosmic <laughs> Infinity. That's, that's yeah. pretty awesome. It is a good one. It's a good yeah. one. <laughs> Thank you so much. It yeah, also seems it <laughs> like it's a good name because it seems like it's going to work for Infinity at this point. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so there are a lot, so many unique things about this processor. 
One is the secondary cache was put on the chip rather than on the on the motherboard, which enables signals to get between the two on a 64-bit data path rather than the 32-bit path of uh, classic Pentium systems buses at the time. The other huge thing about the Pentium Pro processor, unique thing, is that it contained both RISC or reduced instruction set computer and CISC, which is complex instruction set computer architecture in one processor. And it was the first for Intel to combine RISC and CISC. That's very cool. <laughs> so that was, you know, the, the RISC processors were used in, you know, the DEC alphas and um, Silicon graphics machines and the SunSpark systems. And Apple used at the time uh, a lower performing version of it. But uh, did that create but, any conflicts having both instruction sets in there at times or problems? There were some issues initially, and then, but, but for, of course, for Linux, it worked out of the box. Oh, um, <laughs> but in Windows, there, there were issues. Yeah, Windows initially. wouldn't know what to do with that. Yeah. <laughs> but they eventually got that fixed. So the, the Pentium Pro, actually, the one in the machine, retailed for $2,675. I actually went through my receipts on that. <laughs> <laughs> and the motherboard was around 500 But that was a drop in a bucket compared to spending about $40,000 on a system that can do animation. So it, and actually this computer originally had a SuperSocket 8, and that, that was the socket for the Pentium Pro, uh, 180 megahertz with 256 kilobytes of onboard L2 cache. But it was later upgraded to a Pentium Pro 200 megahertz with a one meg of onboard L2 cache. <laughs> now, what do Sweet. you use this machine for today other than to boot up and go, well, oh, that's pretty. Do you know there's still some, and I'm going to get to that later, there's okay. still software on here that I use. <laughs> I love it. That's, I love <laughs> hearing that these yeah, it's optimized for the older animation software. Yeah, so it has actually it has 256 megabytes of RAM. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> what a beast for the day. And yeah, as I was saying before, it is a full tower IBM AT or advanced technology motherboard form factor made by AOPEN. And actually the motherboard that's in Cosmic Infinity is bigger than this one. This one is a small one, <laughs> believe it or not. Well, you've got plenty of room for sure. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that limousine case. <laughs> and I have another case that has a dual processor Pentium Pro motherboard in it with, with two uh, Pentium Pros. And that, nice. that, that case is actually even bigger. <laughs> this is my baby. This is the one that started yeah. it all. <laughs> it's beautiful. I love it. So now I'm going to show you the back of Cosmic Infinity. Oh, I see room for another fan at the top. <laughs> uh, this case, I've got five fans in here. Uh, the front fan is a um, RGB, rainbow vomit fan. As nice. Well. Nice. Yeah. Love it. Wendy so would love I, that. I didn't, I didn't actually need that one because I, I had much more powerful fans in here. So Jill, the first thing that I noticed right away is a lot of cards. Oh yes. In this machine. Yeah. <laughs> you can see almost every port is filled and there, there were times I had to take cards out to utilize cards I needed. <laughs> mm. <laughs> so the first thing I want to tell you about is it actually has a uh, four internal SCSI hard drives with an onboard Adaptex SCSI controller. And uh, there were times I had to take some of these cards out so I could have an external uh, controller for some jobs I was working on for external drives and such. <laughs> so that was a thing. And yes, because of all the cards I used, I used to run out, have IRQ conflicts. I always had to go through and oh, <laughs> fix all that in the BIOS. Yes. Remember those days? Yes. <laughs> so along with the uh, SCSI hard drives, um, there's a Sound Blaster Pro sound card on there, of course. Yeah, <laughs> we really? have to have one of those. And there's two ISA Ethernet cards. And one I use for the internet and the other was for my local render farm on my home network. And my first home network used a, used token ring. So these are actually token ring nice. <laughs> adapters. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Cool. Some of <laughs> these things, Ethernet. I don't even know what they are. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm old enough to know what they are, but I don't. You don't know what a Sound Blaster is? No, I know what a Sound Blaster is. I don't know what a token <laughs> ring is. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. That was the original network before we had the convenient Ethernet adapter. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. So, and and it was very finicky. (laughs) That's a lot of people (laughs) out there would know. Very finicky and complex to set up. (laughs) So, we're happy we got Ethernet (laughs) later. Very much. (laughs) So, there's also... Originally, I had a Matrox Millennium G200 PCI video card with 16 megabytes of RAM. Nice. It was actually later upgraded to a Diamond Fire GL1000 PCI video card uh, with video capture. So I went from, and I, I love that Matrix card, but I needed something that also had a video capture on it. And that was one of the things. I had a Matrix card with a, a Rainbow Runner um, daughter board uh, for video capture. But it, it it took too much space in the case. <laughs> so I had to go out and buy an all-in-one. <laughs> Just you mentioning diamond video cards takes me back to seeing them <laughs> yeah. in the store and getting them finally getting one for myself. That was the yeah. name that you wanted. There's yeah. so many, like, it's kind of funny how so many uh, companies made devices and cards and stuff like that back then that have cool names. And now we're completely out of that. They had diamond fire video card. Like, yes, yes. Yeah, that was, (laughs) well, that was, they were aimed at the high-end animation market. You know, the whole Diamond line, you know, their gaming cards were awesome. They contained some of the first Voodoo chips. (laughs) Yes. They were cool. But yeah, um, also, you notice that there's no fan in the top here because I have, uh, oh yeah, no, I've mentioned that. That was unique for this time. Most computers, you know, were just classic Pentiums. And you were lucky just to have the the fan in the power supply and the fan on the processor. In fact, processors were just starting to have fans on them. So yep. that was a bit of trial and error, trying to figure out kind of the best flow for the system with the Pentium Pro. But because I made my own heat sink and fan, it was really, really efficient. That, that It was a much better one than the one that Intel. And you're still running <laughs> a custom fan, fan inside of this one here. Correct. Right? Yeah. Good. Yeah, in fact, that other motherboard I showed you was from one of my other computers. I wanted to take it out to show you guys. (laughs) The other unique thing in this computer is it has a Sigma Designs Real Magic Hollywood Plus Hardware Accelerated MPEG Decoder PCI card for playing DVDs, video CDs, super video CDs, and a few games like Dragon's Lair and The Lord of the Rings. And uh, (laughs) it, it has a VGA hardware dongle, pinwheeled which pinwheeled the video, the video signal from the video card to the Hollywood Plus. And I have several of the Real Magic MPEG decoder cards in the in the my other computers, including ISO ones in my 486. You know, I just I love playing DVDs through these cards because of the high quality video signals and sound they produced and the fact that you could play a DVD or MPEG video while working on other software on the computer. Without without that card, you had to use software decoding and encoder, which most processors weren't even good about uh, about doing back in those days. So it was nice to have a specific piece of hardware just for that task. And I would also use it to test DVDs I authored for my animation demo reels and ones I, I made for my clients. So I really needed that hardware. <laughs> So there is also something else very unique about this motherboard. This motherboard was the first to include a USB port, and it was USB 1.0, and you can see the USB (laughs) ports on the back of the machine. Yeah, Intel actually introduced the universal serial bus with the Pentium Pro motherboards, but of course there weren't any devices available with USB yet. (laughs) What did you use for it in there? Why did you get it? Or did you not have anything to put in it either? Actually, what I ended up using it for was for case mods. <laughs> like like the RGB strips on the front. Very nice. nice. I it for that. All right. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> so, and I later um, up- upgraded, put a more modern uh, USB 2.0 uh, uh, card in it. Because I did, uh, uh, USB flash drives were starting to become a thing in the right. late 90s, early 2000s. So I wanted to be able to have that access. And for copying files a lot quicker (laughs) (laughs) instead of using floppy disk or zip disk. Now I wanted to talk a little bit about the software. It actually triple boots Windows NT originally was 3.5 and then later 4.0 
Windows 95, and Debian Linux. So I started out actually using Autodesk Animator and Autodesk Animator Pro for DOS, and then 3D Studio for DOS versions 2 through 4. And I also used Lightwave, Imagine Animation, as well as POV Ray 3D graphics programs. Then later switched to 3D Studio Max, Adobe Premiere, and After Effects for Windows NT 4. But on Linux, I used Maya, I used Blender, and I used the GIMP, even Image Magic <laughs> and FFmpeg to do a lot of conversions. So I always tried to use Linux as much as possible in my projects. Right. Yeah. And, and since this was the mid to late 90s, most animation houses were still using Unix, like I talked about earlier, SGI machines, and they hadn't made the transition to Linux yet. But Linux actually swept the film and television industry. And in the late 90s through the 2000s, many companies like Disney, Pixar, and DreamWorks actually moved from Unix to Linux. And actually, there are some very important reasons that they did this, besides the obvious ones that us as Linux users know, <laughs> is for one, Linux was the free version of Unix. And now they didn't have to spend $30,000 or more than 30,000 in licenses for their Unix workstations. And for another, they could develop their own in-house animation software specifically tailored for their unique needs and progress the animation industry. So, ah, yes, that's the beauty of open source software, right? We know that as Linux users. Well, the so ability to customize why. is really important. I know there was, a, yeah. I believe it's a scene in Lord of the Rings where they needed to put the most amount of AI individually controlled orcs on the screen at one time than what the software they were using or something was capable of. So they ended up using Linux, writing a custom module to be able to, yes. to show all of those orcs acting independently on the screen at the same time, because it wasn't just enough just to show a bunch of pictures of orcs. They had to all be acting like they were at war or battling for the major scenes and things. So that ability to customize Linux and, and write your own code for it was super important for an animation yeah. studio and still and is Ryan, today for yes. blockbusters like that. Yeah, That was an absolute great example because I was actually going to talk about how uh, they actually, uh, the studios that did uh, Lord of the Rings uh, developed their own version of the GIMP uh, just for film touch-up. I didn't know that. And and cutting and pasting the different characters to make the armies seem bigger. Oh, that's cool. So, yeah, that was that was the thing. That was one of the first times that Linux got used in, in the film industry. And you said, last, I think last week you said that the film industry is pretty much dominated by Linux these days. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, now um, all, all the... The top CG movies by uh, Pixar, Disney, DreamWorks, it's all Linux. And a lot of people don't realize that. They, they think, oh, it's got to be Windows or it's got to be Mac. Well, there might be, you know, some of the artists are using um, a little bit of, you know, Windows and Mac for content creation. But most of the content creation now is on Linux. And of course, all the rendering and back end is on Linux. Nice. That's so cool. As an animation teacher, I would go to Seagraph convention every year and i got to see the the progress of that transition from unix to linux and what was so cool is disney coming out on the stage with uh linux laptops you know showing nice. off their new software they were creating and uh someone actually asked them in the audience well can't we get a windows or, or mac version they said no you have to use linux yeah. This is all developed on Linux. <laughs> nice. And that was a huge transition. That was in the 90s. And I'm just like, yeah, <laughs> in the audience. That's awesome. I love it. <laughs> so this computer here, you mentioned kicking off your career. Yeah. Tell me about that. Is that it, it actually, you know, it did launch my animation career. And now I had a computer powerful enough for content creation and rendering animation. And it was actually the computer that started my home render farm. So, yeah, it was just... So it's not it, only special it, to you, it's special to us. This yes. created Jill. This <laughs> machine and Jill working together created Jill. Yeah. Yes, yes. And the other major reason why this computer is so special to me is that I have been teaching computer animation and motion graphics for 
over 30 years and have worked in the television, film, and gaming industries doing everything from animation, modeling, visual effects, editing, and programming for TV commercials, for film, for movie trailers, and assets for games. And I've done work for ESPN, Fox, Warner Brothers, and Electronic Arts, just to name a few. And my animation and special effects work I did on the film The Perfect Storm, released in the year 2000, was nominated for an Academy Award. And it was because of this computer. That's awesome. I love it. <laughs> and I've actually got other nominations and, and awards as well. But that, that all of a sudden my career was set, you know, <laughs> That's awesome. I, yeah, that every, was every, a very special I'm, computer. Yeah. I'm blushing because sharing this with with everyone <laughs> is, is is I'm usually pretty quiet about such things. You should though. I think it, it's an amazing <laughs> testament to who you are and the work that you've done, and watching your ability to actually watch Linux grow in an entire industry and yeah. kind of take over. I think is fascinating in an industry that you clearly have credentials to be talking about, uh, which is very important as well. But you did mention modeling. And so I want to know, do I have what it takes to make it in Hollywood? Oh, <laughs> oh you are so cute. Actually, oh. you have so much charisma, Ryan. And I uh -huh. mean that. I'm serious. You have so much charisma. Oh, wow. And that's one of the reasons you and Michael have really good charisma together. And I think that that's why the show is so good. <laughs> Oh, you're so sweet. So, so the I expect you to take that seriously, but I'm yeah. going to Hollywood, guys. Yep. Yeah. See ya. <laughs> <laughs> See ya. No, but that, that's amazing. I'm so happy you chose this computer to share with us something that helped mm -hmm. launch your career. And to me, when I think about like you, if you find that thing that just fits that tool, then it's really not. It doesn't feel like a job, right? And yeah, I remember the days of building computers, and the first time I built my own computer for me, and it was that IBM Blue Lightning chip. Oh I've got yes. two of them sitting in a case right there, right? <laughs> because to me, that brings back that memory of this is when I knew I loved hardware. This is when yeah. I knew that thing. And for you, that computer represents your love of animation and creation and all of that. And I love that you still have it. I hate Yay. that I didn't have your brain and wasn't smart <laughs> enough to keep all the computers that I loved over the years. You know. Oh, I, I was got happy. Rid of them. You remember on a past treasure hunt, I showed my 486 that was upgraded from a 386. I used mm -hmm. parts from that for this. And I even used it in my render farm, you know, getting started because every little bit counted. And there were times like, for instance, I had um, an animation project that one frame was taking 24 hours to render just mm. one single frame. It took months to render it. And if, and, uh, that's how I started my render farm. <laughs> All of a sudden, I needed to render that project in a timely fashion. So I uh, got lots of, uh, added more computers. I put 486, 386. I started getting blade servers and just re re really building out a farm. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> so how long did it take typical project for you to render on that machine back? You know, honestly, it, it, it varies. It depends on how many objects you have in a scene, how many reflections and refractions. The one that took 24 hours of frame, per frame, I had several hundred objects with reflections and refractions. So it has to render four sides of every ob object independently. And that's what would take so long. But there were other projects that I could render, you know, in just a couple days. But that was that was unusual. Usually it took several weeks to several months. So when I would do projects with other animation houses and for companies, we always had to put in the time for rendering. You know? Have you ever taken one of your projects that <laughs> took you weeks to render back then and tried to render it on modern hardware today to see the difference? Yes, and I what, sure have. What, what is the difference? You, it is it is huge, but even even the one the one that took twenty four hours still mm -hmm. kills a computer today. <laughs> <laughs> I bet it does. I bet no, it does. It still takes like ten yeah. minutes to render each frame. Wow, that's incredible. Yeah, even on newer powerful systems. But part of that is is that the software gets more complex, and the rendering gets more complex, and there's more colors and more light and re reflections and refractions, and more movement. So. With animation, that's one of the reasons why computers get 
faster is because of the animation <laughs> industry, because they're working with software that's constantly changing and requires more, has greater hardware requirements. So the computers get faster. Mm-hmm. So putting, bringing a file um, from old 3D Studio from DOS in, into you know, uh, Blender it still still takes a long time to yeah. render. <laughs> the gaming and, and movie industry, animation industry exactly. has pushed computing forward in massive ways. So even people yeah. who are into that stuff, you're still getting a huge advantage because it exists. Yeah. That's why, you know, Pixar has as many computers as Google does in one of their warehouses, you know, <laughs> because they have to for awesome. rendering and and to fin- you know, come in on time on their on their projects and movies. You know what always amazed me from an animation that stands out like the first time I really my breath was taken away by animation was Final Fantasy. And it was when they oh, had beautiful. the hair that was able to move independently and almost see him blow yeah. in the wind. And it was just yeah. like the future is now like that was yeah. just amazing. I couldn't imagine how much work that took back then um, to be able to render those type of the of hair, stuff. the hair uh, animations and the hair simulations are like one of the most complex things that has been for yeah. years and they keep getting better and now there's so much good like also cloth simulation has become like oh that's a, another huge yeah, thing very, yeah it's been it's so so much improvements like if you go back to lord of the rings for example there's this period where they're running across this uh this bridge this big like stone bridge thing and uh everything in that scene is cg Mm-hmm. Like there's no one actually there. It's old CG. How do you know that when you've never seen Lord of the Rings? And yes, I'm sorry to air this publicly, <laughs> but your Michael Tanell is not a real geek. Hey, he's got Michael AI. He knows the Rings. I am a real geek. I have not seen no. Lord, of the, Lord of the Rings. You haven't seen That's Lord of true. the Rings. We can't even talk anymore. Okay, <laughs> I haven't seen that, but I have seen a lot of the stuff about how they made the movie because but, I but am you really don't need to watch the movie. <laughs> I am also super interested in animation and special effects and how that stuff works so i do sometimes look at that more than i do the movies and in this case that's what happened so, so maybe at so some point lame. i'll watch lord of the rings okay i'll watch it movie made with linux and you don't even watch it <laughs> we could make yeah. like a re- i can make a reaction video or something for this shit movie see there's there's a benefit for me not seeing it because <laughs> how many how many geeks do i have not seen lord of the rings see so much potential right there you got to yeah. think about it in a different perspective right absolutely <laughs> anyway so they have this this bridge where everything is CG, and the biggest thing that makes it where you can't tell is the massive uh, cloth simulation they did for one of the characters. So they have yeah. this coat, and you can't really tell that it's not because usually they like they'll just kind of stick to the person or something like that. And they did it so well mm-hmm. that you can't even notice it. And then there was like this de- um, reaction to special effects, and they were saying like they, it blew their minds that all of this stuff was completely CG. And it also blew my mind. But like going back to the hair simulation, mm-hmm. I got really into animations and graphics and design and stuff like that <laughs> from Pixar, actually. So Toy Story 1 got me really interested in animation mm-hmm. and, and, and like yeah, stuff like that. But then the one that actually blew my mind that made me go like, okay, I got to see how this works and I got to get into it was uh, Monsters, Inc., with Sully oh, and it's the hair I mean, animation. They the did hair, his, yeah. It was crazy because back then that was completely a brand new thing that no one ever did. Yeah, and they developed that hair program on Linux. And they also developed awesome. an open source Linux-based software to to do all the water effects for Finding Nemo. That's so amazing. <laughs> no, I didn't know any of that. That's very cool. And Michael, what you were saying about the hair, one of the reasons that's so complex to render is because each individual strand is a separate object. So imagine, you know, thousands of objects and you're having to render these thousands of objects. Now you can, the particle systems do help with that. So you can integrate them with, so they can be looked at as a big uh, group of objects. And that does help, but it's still, there's still thousands of objects. So us being able to play games and see hair blowing in say Tomb Raider in real time is amazing. Yeah. Yeah. That is awesome. The more and more they start using the hair and the other stimulations and all that stuff gets like, as we were talking about the, the hardware getting better because of these things, that that's how everything becomes more and more realistic and, yeah. you know, like I remember going back and like, you know, playing games in the 90s 
and early 2000s where everything's like super pixelated and you come back and there was this one um, thing about how people were complaining about various different silly things and they were and you go back for a game that was like 10 years prior but in the same franchise and you're like look at how gra- how the graphics are amazing and then you look <laughs> at the now current graphics and it's like you can't hardly tell it's a game and they're complaining mm-hmm. about like okay that hair is a little bit off like <laughs> yeah i know yeah. No, is there a name for the effect of when you watch a movie in, in the past, like Star Wars is a good example, or any of those shows, Star Treks, and back then when you saw them, it all looked as real as it could then, like to the, the scenes, the spaceship travel, but then later on, when you watch it in the future, it looks so fake, like you could practically see the strings holding the model going and you're like, yeah. how as a kid did I not see any of so that? It just- I do have a, a, a terminology that I use to describe <laughs> this particular feeling and it's called kid brain. Yeah, kid. That's it. Very good. <laughs> and also uh, CRT, uh, our standard uh, NTSC standard good here in the point. US was 640 by 486. Right. So you didn't see that detail. Mm. And there was a lot of fuzzy also just because of the way they... I didn't think that about that, Jill, but that, the, the screen to... differences and the resolution yeah. alone would have made a huge difference. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. Mm-hmm. There's okay. also some things about like why some movies can't have widescreen versions or you know HD versions is because they designed it where the viewport was the 4 by 3 and you had someone yeah. literally standing right there that was a crew member and they couldn't expand it because then they would be showing <laughs> yes. the... Just watching the crew yeah. members sit there. <laughs> exactly. With the spaceship cr- flying by. We called that a safe frame so they 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 created the safe frame or the safe border yeah made it too small that's amazing also i I appreciate uh, calling me out because now the live chat's like shame shame oh yes i love the live chat for that you should be shamed you should be shamed jill is there anything else you want to tell this has been one of my favorite treasure hunts ever because it's so personal to you and we love you so much so is there anything else you want to mention before we move on though Maybe that if you would like to get, you know, involved in the animation and effects, know that it's going to require a lot of work, a lot of perseverance, and sometimes you have to make things to get things done. Even today with today's powerful computers, you still have sometimes have to have a render farm or have it have it rendered in the cloud. Yeah, so yeah. that's there's a good point. The, the a, a lot of the issues that I dealt with in the 80s and 90s are still relevant today. It's just things are easier, but in some ways things have gotten more complex too. Yeah. And I still <laughs> make stuff for making the show. Like when I'm doing the OBS stuff, I do special things to make it work. Even though OBS is an amazing piece of software that makes it a lot easier to do certain things, I still yeah. in the back end are creating like my own plugins or creating certain uh, scripts that make this thing possible. And also the same thing with Caden Live. Like even though you get into this, this, this thing and there's such massive advancement it's a great point that you made about like there's still a lot that you will need to learn Mm -hmm. it's great for people (laughs) who want to experience that sort of stuff where you get to build your and create your own thing but also it is a a very long journey to get even remotely decent in it i would consider myself like (laughs) i like maybe a little okay okay Uh, and You're doing great. You'll see some of my work later. You'll all be blown away. <laughs> That's well, true. Yeah, I, uh, I, I do want to mention, though, one of the things I love about this story mm-hmm. is I can't help but think of open source and the power of closing the digital divide that open source provides. You mentioned mm-hmm. $50,000 Unix licenses, exactly. $20,000 software to do animation. And because open source existed, because those developers out there created things like Blender and made it open source mm-hmm. so everybody could access to it. We have Jill and your experience and your life story that you could share with us. And there's a bunch of different Jill. There's a bunch of potential Jills out there. And because of open, <laughs> they have the ability yes. to be able to learn to animate and things like yeah. that. Yeah. And they don't, they didn't have the problems I did with pricing <laughs> on, on software, yeah. on Unix, on hardware. Yep. And the other important thing I tell my students is when you get into the animation industry, remember that it's only half art. The other half is troubleshooting and hardware and maintenance. Nice. So that's one of the reasons why I show my students how a computer works when they're beginners and learning how to animate. Some of the first classes I do is I open up a computer, show them what all the parts do and why that's important and why they're going to need to know how, how to upgrade and troubleshoot. 
I feel like college would have actually been worth it for me if I had found you as a professor in college, Jill. Oh, um, absolutely. <laughs> unfortunately, I didn't. Um, so I didn't yep. find that bill very nice. But you know what company doesn't have big bills at all, Michael? <laughs> nice segue. <laughs> I, I love it. I love it. Bitwarden. Bit, this episode of Destination Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden, and you can get started for free. I mean, that is way better than the cost of college. Free right there. And they even have a premium account that's only $10. Bitwarden is a password manager that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. It provides you the tools to store all your passwords in a secured vault, auto-generate those passwords for you, and even automatically fill them in to the login forms. It does everything. You can access your data across many types of devices, your web browser, using your mobile apps, desktop applications, even the command line in there. What we want you to do to get started, go to bitwarden.com slash DLN, and you can get started for free or get their premium account, which comes with things like a gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator, Priority Customer Support, and so much more. Make the smart move like so many in our community have. Go to bitwarden.com slash DLN. You will not regret it. We love this password manager before they ever became a sponsor. So check out bitwarden.com slash DLN. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring Destination Linux. So this week in the news, Inkscape 1.1.2 is released. But what's really exciting is the Alpha 1.2 that's also out there. For those who may not know, Inkscape is a free and open source vector graphic drawing program and editor. This is not really my area of expertise necessarily. However, to get prepared for this news story, you're going to see something coming up that may blow your minds there. But playing with the current over version of Inkscape, I've got to make this comment first that Inkscape looks really dated to me. Am I the only one? Like, I know it's a powerful tool, but that's my first impressions in playing with it is like the icon set and the menu. It just feels like I'm in MS Paint or something. Am I alone here? I mean, it is a Aww. little, it's a little bit dated in certain ways. Like I'm showing <laughs> it on the visual right now. So there are ways to kind of remove the colors and make it more monochrome in the icon set. And there are also other ways to kind of make it look a little bit better. And I do really love the fact that they added a dark mode. Yeah, because, it's a dark theme. Yeah, I'm <laughs> yeah. showing the dark theme with the white canvas and the visuals, oh, but they okay. also have a dark canvas, which is... Yes what I use when I'm actually doing things, but it's very, that's very cool to have that as an option. Uh, but I do think that it, it could use a little bit of some polish in here and there to, you know, improve some icons and then kind of make the layout a little bit more, you know, user-friendly and that sort of stuff. But I think that overall it's not bad. I've seen, I've seen way worse. I think it's overall, it's, it's, it's good enough as it is, but it could be improved. Well, I feel like the tool is so powerful. I've seen some of the most amazing things done with it. The people developing it are incredibly talented. So don't get me wrong there. It's just when you go into it, your first impression is like MS Paint. It just kind of feels like that. And then you click around, you're doing stuff, and you're like, okay, that's really cool, the, the capabilities that it has here. In fact, yeah. uh, once I got into it, I started creating some amazing art because I wanted to show Jill. <laughs> I want to try to get one of Jill's classes. So I wanted to show her what I was capable of. And, and for everybody Michael, watching, thankfully, we actually have an ability to show oh, you, you that a piece we, of that art. We're going to show you that art. Too. You can check it out right now on your on the videos. Look version. at that! Look at it's that! It's just, it's just. Thank you, thank you. Just, uh, what I did was going here for is a mosaic of the 3D realm. This mm. is the meta uh, oh. universe nice. coming so, together. So here what you're saying picture. is that you captured the abstract aspect of the multiverse of madness is what you're saying. Yes. Perfect. Mm. Yes. I feel like mm. I nailed it. So this will be <laughs> NFT'd for a cryptocurrency. <laughs> no, it won't. Yeah, just teasing. Tell me about your vision. How did you decide to take this abstract approach to the multiverse? Well, what I did first is I was thinking in my mind, what is meta? What is this <laughs> thing that Facebook keeps trying to tell us what about? What is meta? And, <laughs> and if I tried to put it onto paper... <laughs> Uh, using my artistic abilities, this is what I came up with. I dragged a couple of icons around and it just built itself, frankly, uh, out of nowhere there. So I love it. You're welcome, it just, world. it just came out from you. You, you, you didn't, just, you didn't art, you didn't do the art. You just allow the art to flow to from you. Exactly. Yes. Thank you. Thank well you. done. Well done. Ryan, I could use it in a, as a good example of perspective for, for my students. <laughs> 
That's actually that's true. That makes it into a joke bathroom. Like Jill will be like, "This is what you don't do, folks. This is what you don't do." Uh, but seriously, um, Jill, this is your area of expertise, and Michael. So let me turn it over to you all. What are you, what are your thoughts on the latest versions of Inkscape and some of the features here? Oh, gosh. One of the big things I'm really excited about is you now have uh, the ability to bring in multiple pages into one document, which allows you to import multi-page PDF documents and export them. <laughs> it's it's a very important function that we have in other vector e editors, other proprietary ones out there. <laughs> and I thought it was also cool that the color palette has been refactored to make finding colors easier, which actually includes now you have palette previews, easier scrolling, and multi-line palette views. Thank goodness. Now you can make that the palette view on the bottom of the screen at least two lines so you can see it better like me. <laughs> yeah, there, there's some benefits. Like it was like an endless scrolling thing. Yeah. And now it's it's, it's so much better. Uh, but also like the multi-page thing is just kind of funny because mm. there's like this very common thing that happens in uh, well, it's Illustrator or Inkscape, it doesn't matter, when it's a, a vector graphics application, the people who are working on those, you know, they try to make it where, you know, the canvas is where everything is that it's important that you share with someone. But also, you'll see tons of stuff everywhere. Because yeah. the canvas is actually more than just the page, but the page yeah. is where you do the rendering part. So having multiple pages means you could actually output rendering all of your stuff rather than having it's just massive chaos surrounding the single page. So that's yeah. that is great. Oh yeah, it's so much easier for for when you have lots of layers and you need to move objects out of the way just temporarily <laughs> before yeah. you put it in your final canvas. Yeah, and it's got configurable toolbar and a lot more uh, customization options. You can now batch export to multiple file formats, including SVG and PDF. And this is very important because all the good animation and graphics programs have batch exporting <laughs> to right. make life easier. <laughs> so if you want to export to SVG, you know, PDF, you have it now. <laughs> SVG is probably the most practical, but that, yeah. you know, there, there's, I mean, it's really nice to have the badge exporting thing. And I also wanted to talk about the uh, snapping guides. Like they knew how they have now have snapping guides, which just makes it easier for you to create guides to be able to snap stuff quickly to round it. Because if you do a lot of different mini, like m tiny objects, it can be a little bit more difficult to know where you're going to quickly move these things. And if you just put the guides in, it allows you to kind of uh, create a grid to specifically move them really quickly. And that's that's pretty awesome. And you also have dithering to reduce banding when you export your projects. Nice, nice. For those yes. who don't know, that's basically an artifact <laughs> that makes it look like the gradient sort of disappear. And you know, this is uh, much appreciated for them to be adding this. I'm so glad you explained that, Michael. Yeah. It sounded like you were speaking Klingon to me a second ago. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> dithering also in animation programs is also very important particularly with textures that have bump maps so mm. you, you don't you don't <laughs> see the, all those those little imperfections uh, the the banding issues of lines so in our software spotlight this week i figure we would bring in something to do with animation and graphics and why not inkscape extensions because i found out there's a lot of people that don't know inkscape has an extension system and it does some really cool things out there so specifically, I'm going to talk about one of these called Jigsaw, Laser Cut Jigsaw. This extension creates jigsaw-shaped pieces. It includes options for back and single cut pieces as well. So you can send this to your laser cutter and manufacture your own jigsaw puzzle. But if you don't have that, and let's say you have a 3D printer, there's also plugins for 3D printer inside Inkscape as well, which is really cool. There's a plethora of them for different shapes and exploring and doing things with your 3D printer. So if you've not checked out the extension system inside Inkscape, and you're just learning about Inkscape, go check that out because there's a whole marketplace of cool things that you could do with Inkscape through that system. Oh, and speaking of which, that's one thing that makes Inkscape unique because it is open source. People can develop extensions for it to make the program better. It's something we don't have in Adobe Illustrator and CorelDRAW. Really good point <laughs> there. Very true. Up next in the show, we're going to talk about some stuff like last week, Ryan made a comment about he had a need for speed. So <laughs> it's just fitting that this week, and the tip of the week, is about the speed of your mirrors on getting your packages for your distribution. 
So in Linux, we have a need for speed. Well, some people, I mean, you might not need to do this. It's just clear. It's, it's, you need to. You have to. You could save yeah. an extra couple seconds sometimes. Well, sometime, we are the master race. We have to be faster. The default yes. of the PC distri- master race. A lot of the distributions defaults are, are, are fine and will work just fine. But in some cases, Boring. You, you might need to do this. So this week's tip is going to help all of you on Fedora and Arch and Ubuntu, and maybe others, we'll see. Uh, but there's a lot of ways to improve the finding the, 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 the fastest way of doing it, and they're all different. But the way you do it in Fedora is you go into the file that is etsy dnf dnf.conf, and you add the fastest mirror equal true parameter. You can also do something similar on Arch Linux and use the reflector tool. So you just install reflector and then use it. And then in with Ubuntu... It's a little bit more convoluted. Mm-hmm. So instead, mm-hmm. I'm going to have a link in the show notes that explains how to do it. So if you do need to get uh, to test, test to see what the closest mirror to get the fastest speeds for you is, then you'll ha- you can check the links in the show notes to get more details about how to do it for your system. See, I didn't know about Reflector. I'm not embarrassed to say it. As an Arch user, by the way, I use Arch. I didn't know Reflector <laughs> was a thing because Arch is so fast already that I didn't even think about it because Arch is so fast and amazing and great, but Reflector is something I'll check out for Arch now that I know that well, you said that... As a Fedora user, I don't have any issues with the speed of my mirrors, so I'm totally fine with using the default ones that come to the mirror. So I didn't ever use this fastest mirror option either, so that's kind of interesting, yeah. Uh, very interesting. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, and I've I've done it on Ubuntu before. I usually do it manually, but there's a, a nice curl command you can use. That yeah. works well. I'll have that but, link that, yeah. that command in the it's it's a really long <laughs> command, but there's yeah. <laughs> other ways to do it manually, things like that. So the, I, the link I'll share with you has details about awesome. all the different ways and stuff. So be clear, I've never done it on Ubuntu, so I don't know how well it works there. So just use it at your own risk. Yeah. But you know, mm-hmm. we have an awesome community member, Durhans, who hooked us up with all the conferences. Make sure that we're getting the conferences and cool events that you can attend out there to our community. We have FOSS Asia in April. That'll be virtual April 7th through 9th. We have Linux Fest Northwest April 22nd through the 24th, which is virtual Linux app summit also virtual April 29th through the 30th red hat summit in person and virtual May 10th through the 11th and scale in person live streaming VODs on YouTube. It's everywhere July 28th through the 31st. And you might even see Jill there. So oh, yeah, there you go. absolutely. <laughs> Jill's an important one. A big thank you to each and every one of you for supporting us by watching or listening to Destination Linux. We're here every Sunday at 1 p.m. Eastern at dlnlive.com. The best part, all of you are invited to watch the recording of Destination Linux each and every week. We can't wait to see you in the chat. And we also have our glorious patrons with gets perks like unedited versions of the show, and they get to hang out with us in the patron post show where we have a 60,000 square foot virtual stadium for everybody there. There's virtual vending <laughs> machines, anything in your imagination. It, it's there. It's quite amazing. Lots of people have talked about it. Yes. Um, all at length. Many. Tens. 65,000 people talked about the 60,000 square foot digital stadium. Um, sure. Yeah, Sure. And if you get to become a patron, you also get to hang out in the patron post show, which is fantastic. Last week, it was the Mega Bowl. This week, it's the Lord of the Rings Bowl. I don't know. <laughs> ring, ring I don't bowl. know where I'm going ring with bowl. this. But you know what you should you know where you should be going with this? Go to dealinstore.com to pick up some swag. We have hats, t-shirts, hoodies, mugs, stickers, all kinds of great stuff, even coasters. There's so much cool stuff you can check it out, especially with the awesome hat that Ryan has, the hardware addicts hat. It's got the circuit Look board design. It's yeah, really awesome. Sweet. So check it out, dealinstore.com. And make sure to check out all the wonderful shows here on the Destination Linux Network. Boy, we have lots of changes coming through the pipeline. So make sure to stay tuned so you can see what exciting new things we have here on the network. We have the Pseudo Show, This Week in Linux, the DOS Geek Channel, Linux Out Loud, Hardware Addicts, GameSphere, and put your cowboy hats on and join our Saturday Linux user group, Linux Saloon. So everyone head to destinationlinux.network and subscribe to all these great shows. And don't forget to leave a rating on your favorite app so others can discover the power of open source and keep those penguins marching in the full Monty of Linux and open source awesome sauce. Everybody have a great week and remember that the journey itself is just as important as the destination. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. See you next week. Love you all. Woohoo! We did it. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs>